every three months or so here at Connect Church, we baptize people. And it's always one of my favorite times of the year. These are highlight Sundays for me. It's just fantastic to see people whose lives are being transformed by Jesus. People who are in process, they're not perfect, they're not saints, they haven't arrived yet, and still God is doing a work in their life. And we get to celebrate it by baptizing them in Jesus' name. Now listen, we actually have another baptism service coming up this January. How many of you guys have been baptized already? Let me hear from you. Woo, good bunch of you. And there are some of you that haven't taken this important step yet. You say, Dan, I'm not ready. I bet you're more ready than you think. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that if you're interested. Or even if you just want to know a little bit more, you can actually take that card that's in the cup holder next to you. That's not just for first-time guests. That's also for you guys, too. If you'll write your name on there and then check the box at the bottom that says, I want more information about baptism, I'll contact you. I'll answer any questions you have. I'll even buy you coffee if that's what you want, okay? We would love for you to participate in our next baptism service. If you've ever been to a baptism at Connect Church, you might notice that we do things a little bit differently than the way some churches do baptism, right? So when we do baptisms, we'll put some example pictures here on the screen for you. We don't pour water over people's head. We don't sprinkle water on top of people. No, when we baptize people, we get a hot tub, we fill it all the way to the brim with warm water, and we dunk them. We go all the way under the water. It's really an exciting moment when somebody comes up out of that water celebrating the new life that they found in Jesus. Now, the reason that we do baptism this way instead of sprinkling or pouring or some other method is that, first of all, this is the way that every single person in the New Testament was baptized. Believe it or not, you won't find one example of sprinkling or pouring. Everybody goes under the water and comes back up. We also do baptisms this way because it's symbolism. It communicates something. So baptism is a symbol of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so just as all of Jesus died in our place, all of Jesus was buried underground and all of Jesus rose from the dead. So all of us goes under the water and all of us comes back out. There's one more thing that full immersion, baptizing people under the water is one more thing that it communicates. And that is that there is no part of me that is not reached and changed by the love of God. See, when we put you under the water, every part of you gets soaking wet, right? Every part of you, when you come back up, you're just drenched and dripping, unless you're Samantha Lodovica. You'll notice there in the far right-hand picture, her armpits did not get wet. And so we tease her all the time that her baptism didn't count. We got to redo it. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. I'm just kidding. But the reason that we do full immersion under the water is because every part of you comes out touched by the water. And it's a symbol of the fact that every part of me is transformed by the love of God. Now, I was baptized the exact same way that we do it here at Connect Church. I was 16 years old, dunked under the water. Thankfully, the pastor brought me up. I had an irrational fear that he was going to hold me under till the bubble stopped, but he didn't do that. He brought me back up. But I'll tell you, when I got baptized, I really struggled with the idea that every part of me is transformed by the love of God. There were parts of me that I was like, yes, God, have it all. And and then there were parts of me that I was like, ah, I don't know. In particular, I struggled with giving over my financial life to God. I struggled with his teachings on money and possessions and the desire to have more of it. I just struggled as a young person. In fact, honestly, if I were to show you the way it looked when I got baptized, this is not a picture of me being baptized, but it's really close to what it looked like. When I got baptized, I basically did this. I stuck my wallet up out of the water. And I said, Jesus, you can have all of me except for this. I'm going to need to hold on to this. You let me stay in control of this, and you could have any other part of me you want. 
Now I know I'm the only one that did that. None of you ever did that. You didn't hold any part of yourself back, not your financial life, not your sexual life, not your thought life. I'm the only one that struggled with that. But that is the way that I viewed it for the first few years, for sure. I just struggled to give all of my life over to God. And I've told you guys in many messages, I'm not like, I'm not shy about telling you what a mess I made of my life early on, dumb decisions I made, even in regards to my finances. And it wasn't until I got into a mess of a situation that I finally looked to God and I said, okay, God, I've tried to do it my way. Maybe now it's time for me to make some change. Maybe it's time for me to approach this a little bit differently so that I am not in this struggle that I'm facing every single day. And it turns out that once I started trusting God and what he had to say about every part of my life, including my financial life, things began to change. Things changed when I started making change. Now, this is the final week of our series, Making Change. And if you just popped in this week, don't worry. It's okay. They don't all build off of each other, but you can catch up on any of the messages from past weeks at our website, connectcalgary.ca slash messages, all right? But during this four-week series, or now it's five weeks, but during the past four weeks, we've been talking about four big truths that you find in the scripture that have the power to transform the way you approach money. They can shatter your preconceptions, your misconceptions, about finances and about you know, what money can and can't do for you. And so I hope that these four are ingrained in you deeply. We've said them enough now that hopefully you guys just know them by heart. I'm gonna put them on the screen in case you guys are here for the first time. And here's what I wanna do. I want us to say each of these four things out loud. And I'll tell you guys, the nine o'clock service crushed it. I didn't even have to do the whole youth pastor like, that was lame, you guys, you can do better than that. Come on, let's say it again with a little more feeling. They just nailed it the first time. So I want you guys to nail it the first time. Let's say these things with a lot of passion because they really are powerful. In week number one, we said less is more. Week two, we said stress is bad. Yes, it is. Everybody can say amen to that. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fact that giving is good. And last week we said tomorrow matters. All right, not bad. That wasn't bad. I won't make you say it again, but I'll tell you 9 a.m. won that one, okay? Now, I hope this has been a life-giving message series to you. I hope that this has made you feel better about your financial situation, about the potential to get beyond where you're at and where God wants you to go. During the last month, I've heard a lot of horror stories from you guys. I really have. Where you came to me and you said, Dan, listen, let me tell you the way my old church used to handle giving talks. And you would tell me these things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, did that really happen? And you're like, yeah, that really happened. And so I understand that. And when I schedule a giving talk or a series on generosity, which we do every two years, by the way. It's not like, oh, offerings are down. I guess I better talk about money. No, we just schedule it every other November. That's why we're talking about it today. And so when I schedule this and we talk about money, I know some of you guys are like, oh, I hope this doesn't get awkward. I don't want to be guilted and shamed. I mean, I just don't. And I don't want to do that to you either. In fact, I don't want you to feel pressure. I want you to feel free. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel inspired to go make a difference in the world. In fact, we've heard those kind of words over the last several weeks. Many of you guys have said, Dan, this, this message series has been refreshing. It's been inspiring. It's been helpful. I even heard from a couple this week who came to me and said, okay, um, you know, you've been talking about credit card debt and how harmful it can be and how it keeps you from doing the things that God wants you to do in the world. And we, when you said the average Canadian household has $16,000 of credit card debt, we actually felt really good about ourselves because we had a little bit on the bank sheet, you know, a little bit on the credit card statement, but it wasn't anywhere near 16 grand. And so we felt really good about ourselves. And then we started talking a bit more about it. And we're like, but wait, why does it make sense to carry any balance at all? What if we made some change 
and we paid it off. And then we were totally free to do whatever God might ask us to do. And they did. I love that, you guys. Whoever that was, and the many of you who have done things like that over the last couple of weeks that I don't even know about, well done. That's amazing. Life is going to be better for you because of that. There's also another thing I get to celebrate with you. In the month of November... You guys were more generous in your giving to Connect Church than you have ever been since our launch. That's phenomenal. Thank you guys for your generosity. I've told you before, I don't get paid on a commission basis. So it's not like, you know, you give more, I get more. That ain't how it works, okay? So this is really your generosity allowing us to do more ministry here in Calgary and Airdrie and around the world. Thank you so much for being generous. But the question becomes, How do we keep the momentum going? How do we continue being generous as a group of people? How do we make sure that you don't get out of debt and living free and able to follow God wherever he might lead? And then two years from now, when we do another generosity series, you're right back in the same situation that you were just a few weeks ago. How do we keep the momentum from this series going? So it's not just a temporary blip on the timeline of our life, but it becomes a new way of living. I think the answer is actually found in the most familiar and famous passage on giving in the Bible. And if you have been around church for a while, you've probably heard people talk about Malachi chapter number three. And the the interesting thing about this passage is it gets a really bad rap because this is often a passage that gets used to guilt people into giving and those sorts of things. And even as I say it now, I mean, some of you guys are like, oh, geez, you know, not today. Come on. Couldn't you have done this last week when I didn't show up? I mean, I get it. I really do. If you are unfamiliar with Malachi chapter number three, if you've never heard of this passage before, I'm just going to tell you straight up. Be prepared because God is going to set the bar of generosity very clear and very high. I'm just going to tell you, he's going to set it high. And if you are familiar with Malachi 3, if you could tell me the highlights of this passage of scripture already without even having to read it, then your challenge is going to be to approach it with fresh eyes and a fresh mind so that you don't see it as a burden that God is placing on your shoulders, but that you see this as the process by which God really does want to set you free to change the world. So Malachi chapter number three, we're going to start reading in verse number six this morning. And I'll give you a little bit of background on it. If you don't know much about Malachi, he was an Old Testament prophet. The book of Malachi is in the Old Testament. That just means that it happened before the birth of Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is before the birth of Christ. Everything in the New Testament is what happened after Jesus was born. And so in the book of Malachi, God, essentially God, the father calls the children of Israel together, his people. And he says, guys, we need to have a family meeting here. So he puts them on the couch, so to speak. And he says, okay, you guys have been acting like teenagers. You've just been running buck wild, going crazy, doing all sorts of stuff. And I've let you get away with it for a little while, but we need to address some of this stuff because if we don't address it now, it is going to get real ugly, real fast. And so God addresses all these crazy things with his children. He talks to them about the fact that they're not treating his house well. He talks to them about the fact that they're not treating each other well. The words that they are using are destroying one another. They're pulling each other down. He even talks about their sex life and he pushes the hottest button of all. He talks about their money and the way that they use the resources that he's given them. So in Malachi chapter number three, verse six, God starts this family discussion by saying, I am the Lord and I do not change. 
we're going to pause right there for a sec because I think it's really interesting that these verses, which were written 2,600 years ago on the other side of the planet, in these verses, God is dealing with the exact same issues that we deal with today. I mean, seriously, don't we tear each other down with our words? Come on now, we do, right? Don't we, I mean, we're not always faithful to the people we love, are we? No. Have we got it all figured out with our money? No, we've talked about that over the last few weeks. And so it's, it's just fascinating to me that even though so much has changed in our world, God is still addressing with them the same stuff that he has to address with me every single day. Cultures change, times change, economies change, all of this change, but our temptations Apparently, they stay the same. Now, the good news is God also reminds us that he does not change. Did you catch that there? It's real obvious. He says, I am the Lord and I do not change. How many of you guys are grateful that God doesn't change? I certainly am. Like when everything else seems unstable and uncertain in my life, if you don't know if you're going to have a job tomorrow, if you don't know if your marriage is going to survive Christmas, when it seems like you can't count on anyone or anything, God reminds his people that he does not change. All right. So then he goes on and he says to him here in verse number seven, Ever since, again, he's talking to his children. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. So he says, now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now I'll just pause right here and I'll say, contrary to what you might've heard about God in the Bible, he is not constantly looking for reasons to destroy us. He's not. He's not up in heaven saying, Dan, don't do it. Oh my gosh, I'll squish you so fast. Don't even, he's not saying that. In fact, when you read the Bible over and over again, what you find is that God is constantly searching for reasons not to destroy us. He's constantly looking for reasons to lavish us with grace and love and favor and generosity. And so he says to these kids here, so to speak, he says to them, guys, you haven't gotten it right, but I want you to know I still love you. And what I'm about to share with you is because I love you, I'm not gonna destroy you. I'm not gonna judge you. Instead, I wanna set you free by the things that I'm saying. When you read the scripture from the first book to the last book, one of the main themes that you will see is the idea that God is more faithful to us than we are to him. You see that in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. You see it in good times, you see it in bad times. You see it when people are obedient, you see it when people are not obedient. God is more faithful to me than I've ever been to him. So God sets the stage for this conversation with the Israelites by saying, you can count on me, I will always love you, and I will always have your best interests at heart. So God starts this conversation and here in, in verse number seven, the, uh, the Israelites start doing what teenagers do. You know, you sit your kids down because they've done something and you want to, you know, confront them about it. And they're like, what, who, me? No, it wasn't me. It must've been him. It was him over there. He broke it. It wasn't me. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, dad. And that's what happens here. The Israelites say, how can we return when we have never gone away? God says, return to me and I'll return to you. They say, how can we return when we've never gone away? Verse eight, God says, should people rob God? And they say, or he says, but yet you have robbed me. And they say, what do you mean? What, who, me, what? No, no, that was him, wasn't me, no. You ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? So this is the heart of the matter. This is where God says, okay, we're getting to it now. I want you to know, I love you and I have your best interest at heart. And so this is why I'm gonna tell you this. And he says to them in the next verse, verse number nine here. 
God says, you have robbed me. Some translations say you have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings that are due to me. So he says, you are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. And then he says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough resources in my temple. He says, okay, guys, here's the big problem. There's a lot going on, but here's one that I want you to focus on. You have robbed me. You have cheated me of tithes and offerings. What he says is his children have been taking and not giving. They have been enjoying all the benefits of being a part of his family and being a part of his house, but they haven't contributed anything to the family or to the house. And so God says, guys, this is a bit of a problem. It's something that you need to address because I know how much damage this sort of mindset and way of living can do to you. Now, um, he uses two words here, tithes and offerings. And these are two words that some people feel like they have a good handle on. Some of you guys may have never heard these words before in your life. And so I wanted to find them quickly so that you know what tithes and offerings are. In the Bible, a tithe, the word tithe, it literally means a tenth. It means 10%. That's what the word actually means. A tithe is a tenth. And it's always paid from the Old Testament through the New Testament. It's always paid to the temple. The tithe is a tenth. It's 10% of your income that's paid to the temple, God's house, the church, whatever the case may be, right? The way the Bible teaches things, God owns everything. He owns all of it. Everything that you know, I have, everything around me, God owns all of it. And he chooses to bless me with some of it. He gives me. Uh, wealth and resources to use. And his plan for me and his plan for you, according to the Bible, is that we would take the 100% that he's given us, we would live off of 90%, and as an acknowledgement of who the source of all of these blessings is, we would give 10% back to him. That's his plan. We would live on 90 and give 10. Now you say, well, that's not fair. Come on, 10% is a lot of money. Who is God to show up and ask me for 10% of my money? But I want you to know that God God could have set this ratio at any level he wanted to. Do you realize that? Like he's God, he can kind of do what he wants. And so if he had said, you know what? I think 50-50 is fair. I'm gonna take 50, you take 50, you owe me 50% of everything you earn, make sure you pay that. If he had done that, he would have been totally within his rights. He could have also said 90-10 is a good split, but let's do it the other way. I want 90, you live off of 10. You could do it, you could make it work. He could have done that. But the Bible tells us God is a giver. He's the one who blesses us with 100% of everything we have. And he gives us this resources, this wealth, this money. And he says, I want you to live on 90. And then I want you to trust me by giving me back 10% of this. Okay. Maybe I could frame it this way. If you're still like, whoa, 10%, are you for real right now? Maybe I could frame it this way. Wouldn't it be amazing if you got a call from the CRA this year and they said, we have good news. We're going to drop you down to the 10% tax bracket. I'm not even sure Canada has a 10% tax bracket, but let's say that they did. Wouldn't it be phenomenal to have a 10% tax bracket? That would be amazing. You'd be like, whoa, that's next to nothing. That's awesome. Yes, I'll take it. I can just imagine God up in heaven looking down at us sometimes. And he's like, what are you getting so mad at me for? You pay the CRA four times what I'm asking you for every single paycheck. Maybe you should be mad at them, not me. See, God says, here's a reasonable amount to trust me with in regards to your finances as an acknowledgement of all the ways that I'm blessing you. Ultimately, we could define the tithe by saying that the first dime of every dollar belongs to the father. 
That's what the tithe is. Now, look, I'm not asking you to tithe right now. I'm not saying, no, you need to start giving me 10%. A, it doesn't go to me, and B, that's not the point. I'm telling you what the scripture says, and then you can deal with it with God. The Bible says the first dime of every dollar belongs to the Father. So this is proportional giving. It's 10% of your income, whether you make 30,000 a year or you make $300,000 a year. That's fantastic. God asks us all to contribute the same proportion of our income to making a difference in the world. So when it comes to your tithe, this is important. Both the amount, 10%, and the recipient are fixed. You can't just change them at will. God says the tithe is 10% that goes to the temple. Now, that's different from an offering because in an offering, you can give as much as you want to whoever you want. It's totally up to you. You can give a few dollars to the kid who's selling candy bars outside of Sobeys, or you can choose to you know, contribute to poverty relief around the world. You can give any amount to any cause that you want to. That's what we would call an offering, okay? So with a tithe, both the amount and the recipient are fixed, but with an offering, the amount and the recipient are flexible. Give them to whoever it is that you want. All right, I told some people after the first service, I'm not totally sure if you guys are gonna let me be your pastor anymore because um, I'm gonna make you mad for a sec, okay? Um, I have had conversations with people in our church, some of you guys, maybe you've had or heard these sorts of conversations. And we have people who say, you know, Dan, I give my tithe to missionaries. I give my tithe to clean water projects. I give my tithe to people in our city who are in need. Let me say, first of all, I love you. I really do. Second of all, I applaud your generosity. The fact that you are so selfless that you would be willing to give money so that people in Africa that you're never gonna meet would have clean water is wonderful. I applaud that. I think it's beautiful and we need more people like you. The fact that you would give to your neighbors to meet their physical and tangible needs, genuinely guys, well done. And I'll also tell you, from a biblical perspective, that's not a tithe. The way tithe is used consistently in the Bible, it is a tenth given to the temple. It's a tenth given to the temple. And so if you choose to bless missionaries or to invest in clean water projects or to meet needs, you are giving, giving offerings and that's beautiful and wonderful and I hope that you continue to do it. But I'll just tell you, that is not what a tithe is. It would be a little bit like you saying, you know, I don't pay my tax dollars to the CRA. I choose to give my tax dollars to Boston Pizza because when I pay my tax dollars to Boston Pizza, they give me food for it. And I like that little scenario better. So that's what I choose to do. The CRI would say, those aren't tax dollars. Because when it comes to your taxes, both the amount and the recipient are fixed. You can't choose to give whatever you want to whoever you want and call it a tax. This is the way it is with the tithe as well. Both the, uh, I'm sorry, both the amount and the recipient are fixed. A tithe is a 10th that's given to God's temple. Now God goes on here. And he says to the Israelites something I hate. This verse has always bothered me. Man, I've hated it so much. He says to them here in verse number 10, he says, um, oh, I'm sorry, uh, verse number nine. He says, you are under a curse. And I always thought this meant God was pissed. And he was like, you guys haven't paid your tithe. You haven't paid me your tax essentially. And I'm angry at you for it. So now, boom, I'm zapping you with a curse. But you know, I've come to understand that that's not at all what God means here. 
When he talks about the Israelites and many of us being under a curse, what he's really talking about is the cursed mindset, the cursed way of thinking that we operate by day in and day out. He's talking about the cursed mindset that has you wake up saying, more is more and I gotta get as much as I possibly can. That's a cursed way to live. He's talking about the the mindset, the idea that you wake up in the morning and you say, stress is inevitable. There's nothing I can do to change it. This is the way things are always gonna be. I just need to accept it. He's talking about the mindset that causes you to think giving is impossible. I would love to, but there is no way I could ever make that happen. He's talking about the thought that enters into our minds so often. Today is all I can handle. I know tomorrow matters, but I could never think about that. I've just got too much on my plate. I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. That is a cursed way to live. We've talked for four weeks about all the hurt and heartache and anxiety and fighting and even sin that's caused when we live with that sort of mindset. So God is right. He accurately diagnoses my heart when he says, Dan, a lot of days you're living under a curse. The way that you think about money and finances and what will make you truly happy in life It's a cursed way to live. It's a way of life that's dictated by being bound up. It's a way of life that's dictated by fear and scarcity and envy over what other people have. But God wants us, he wants me, he wants you to be free from that cursed way of looking at money and possessions. In fact, the Bible tells us that he wants to do something incredible if we'll let him. In the next verse, God says, bring all the tithes in the storehouse so there will be food enough in my temple. And he says, if you do, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing that is so great, you won't have room enough to receive it. Life overflowing, anybody? That's what we're talking about. God just pours blessing onto us to the point that we couldn't contain it, even if we wanted to. He says this, listen to the way God ends this passage on giving. He says, try it, test me, put me to the test and see if I won't bless you the way I am saying here in this verse. See, I've told you guys, the tithe is a 10th. That's literally what the word means. But ultimately the tithe is a test. The tithe, yes, it's a 10th, but ultimately the tithe is a test. Every single week, Christians face a test. I face a test, you face a test. Am I going to honor God with the resources that he's given me? Will I trust him with this plan that he's laid out or will I keep it for myself? Or will I choose to live under this continued cursed mindset? But here's the deal. This is what's so fascinating about this verse. It's not only us that gets put to the test when we tithe. God himself is put to the test when we choose to give. It's what the scripture says. Look back at that verse there. We'll put it on the screen. He says, try it. Put me to the test. He doesn't say, I'm gonna put you to the test. He says, I want you to put me to the test. See, God has made promises of blessing if we will be faithful in tithing. I'm just telling you, that's what the Bible says. He has told us if we are faithful to give to him, to honor him as the source of all good things in our life, he will bless us in bigger ways than we could ever even imagine. And so when we choose to give a tithe, we're putting God on the clock. And we say, is he gonna come through? 
He's on the hook now. He said he was gonna open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so great I couldn't hold it all in. So let's see what he does. My friends, this is the only time in the entire Bible that God invites us to test him. The only time God says, you can test me because I'm so confident that I will come through for you, that I will bless you, that I will make life better for you. You can put me to the test. I can tell you from personal experience and so can so many others in this room that when you test God, you learn you can trust God every time. If you will try it, if you will test God, every time he will come through for you. He will show you that he's trustworthy. As we wrap up this morning, uh, I know that there are objections that are running through your head right now. I get it. Some of you are Christians. You have objections to what I'm saying. Some of you are non-Christians and you're like, yep, this is exactly what I thought the church was all about. Let me see if I can address some of the objections that come up. First one, you may be thinking, hey, wait a sec now. I earned this money. This is my money. Who is God to come in here and ask me for 10% of it? And I'll just ask, are you sure that you are the one who's responsible for the wealth in your life? Are you sure you're the only one who's responsible for the blessings that you have? And you say, yep, definitely. I know it's me. I mean, I'm the one that worked the overtime. I don't think the Holy Spirit showed up to my office and put in 63 hours work last week. I mean, I get it. I do. But let me just ask you a question like this. What did you do to ensure that you were born in a free country and an economy like Canada rather than a closed one like North Korea? What did you do to make that happen? Nothing, right? What did you do to ensure that you were born with the brains to become an engineer? How did you make that happen? You didn't. How did you work out circumstances and situations so that you made this friend who introduced you to this connection, which eventually led to your internship and then eventually your career with six figures? I know you work hard and you should be applauded. I'm cheering you on. Good job. Keep working hard on behalf of your family and recognize there are things that are far beyond your control when it comes to your life circumstances and situations. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, the Bible says this, one of the most important passages on giving you'll ever read. God is speaking to his children. And he says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God, for he is the one who gives you the ability to produce wealth in the first place. Yes, you work hard. Yes, you're creative. Yes, all of that is true. And God is the ultimate source of every good thing you have, even the ability to produce wealth. The second objection that may be coming to your mind right now is, Dan, I would love to give. That would be awesome. I'm totally on board with you. I would even love to tithe, but I can't afford to tithe. I just can't do it. And I look at my budget, there is no margin. There is no room. I could not possibly afford to give away 10% of my income. And I understand where you're coming from. I have been there. I told you two weeks ago what my yearly salary is here at Connect Church. I don't make a lot of money. I know how hard it is to carve out 10% for charity, for generosity, and for giving to God's kingdom. But can I say, I don't understand how somebody could not afford to tithe. You say, I couldn't afford it. I don't understand how you could not afford it. Because the promise of God in the Bible is that 90% with his blessing will go further than 100% without his blessing. If, if you said to me, Dan, you can have 90% of the $64,000 you make each year, and you'll have God's blessing on it. Or you could have all $64,000 and 
God's gonna say, you do it, that's all you, you wanted it all, you manage it all. I know which one I'm gonna take. So the question becomes, in your situation, what will you do? Will you test God in this area? Because he invites you to. Will you trust God in your financial life? Will you put him to the test and see if 90% with his blessing is not so much better than 100% without his blessing? See, you and I have the wrong mindset about where our wealth and resources come from. We tend to think that wealth comes from the ground up, that we build it by the, the hard work, the sweat of our brow that we do each, each and every week. We think wealth comes from the ground up. But look at what James, the brother of Jesus, had to say in the Bible. He said, every good and perfect gift comes up from the ground. No. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the stars. My friends, your wealth, the amount of resources you have, it doesn't come from the ground up and it is not entirely dependent on your hard work and your skill set. Wealth comes from heaven down. God is the source of everything that we have. As soon as we believe that, then we start to realize, well, I couldn't afford not to tithe. I couldn't afford not to honor God for what it is that he has given one more objection. This one only ever comes from Christians. Only ever hear this from believers. Maybe you've made this argument. You've heard this argument. Well, Dan, I don't know how well you know the Bible, but tithing is an Old Testament law and we're under New Testament grace. And maybe you haven't read all the verses in the New Testament, but the New Testament doesn't talk about tithing. So we are not required to give 10% because that's Old Testament. We live under the rules of the New Testament. I have read a little bit of the Bible. One day I came across Matthew 23, 23, and Jesus is talking to some religious leaders of his day. And he says to them, you guys are hypocrites. That's what he says to them. Put it on the screen here. You guys are hypocrites. You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Then look at what Jesus says. You should tithe. Yes, absolutely. And don't neglect the more important things of our faith. We have these conversations where we spiritualize things and we're like, well, that's Old Testament. We're a New Testament. I don't have to do that anymore. Jesus couldn't be any clearer here. In one sentence, he acknowledges and validates the Old Testament standard of giving. And then he reminds us that this is just the floor of giving for New Testament Christians. This is where we should start. And from there, we can go on to be even more generous. My friends, look, for all of our talk about free will, cheerful giving in the New Testament, here's the truth. The average Christian in the world today gives 2.5% of their income. So if you say, I'm gonna give free will just when I feel like it, whenever I have a good opportunity, you will rarely ever give. That's just the way it works. 2.5% is normal. Only 10% of Christians tithe 10% of their income, only 10%. And so what I want you guys to understand as we finish up this morning, this is not, this is not me guilting you. This isn't about failing to measure up to this arbitrary 10% standard that God has set for us. This isn't just about obedience. This is about missed opportunities. See, researchers have done some figuring 
And they've determined that if every Christian around the world were to tie the full 10% of their income, there would be an extra $165 billion a year for churches and charities to use. To put that number into perspective, the United Nations tells us that it would take approximately $30 billion a year to solve all of world hunger and to eliminate all deaths around the world by preventable diseases. It would only take about $15 billion a year to solve the world's uh, clean water and clean water access problems. It would only take $12 billion a year to end illiteracy around the globe. So I want you to follow this here. If we as Christians were to follow the standard of giving in the Bible, we could feed every starving person on the planet. We could eliminate every death by a preventable disease. We could make sure every person on our globe has access to clean drinking water. We could make sure every person could read and have access to education. And every year we would still have $100 billion left over. God is not guilting you into giving. You're not gonna stand, I'm not gonna stand before God and have him say to me, Dan, I told you 10% and you didn't give 10% and because you broke the rule, I'm mad and you're gonna miss out in some way. What I think is gonna happen is God is gonna stand, I'm gonna stand in front of God and God's gonna say, Dan, I asked you to contribute 10% of your income because there were my daughters, my sons around the world who were suffering. And you could have done something. You could have made a difference. And instead you argued about whether or not tithing was required in the New Testament. This isn't about guilt. It's not even about obedience or obligation. It's ultimately about the fact that God has called us to make a difference in the world. And one of the primary ways that we can do that is by trusting him with our tithe, by choosing to give 10% of our income to him and believing that he will bless us abundantly in overflowing ways for being willing to do that. So here's how I want to close this entire series out. I want to challenge you to participate in a 90-day tithing challenge. You could start this month. You could start in January, whatever you want to do. Now know that, number one, I'm not keeping track. I'm not asking you to fill out any cards. I'm not going to be following up with you. I'm not going to be looking to see how much. I, I don't even know any of that stuff. Don't really care. This is between you and God. You see what God calls us to both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you have to decide, what do I do? Will I give? Or will I live under this cursed mindset and keep all of my resources for myself? Because I believe if you would start to trust God for 90 days, if you said, I'm gonna give away 10% of my income to the church, to other people who are in need, I'm gonna give away at least 10%. God will keep his word. You can trust him. If you will be faithful in paying this to God, honoring him, with what he's given you. He will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing so large, you couldn't hold it all in if you tried.